Heavenly Father, our gracious God and Savior, would you meet with us, O Lord, through the preaching of your word. Cleanse us, Lord. Work in our hearts. Open blind eyes and deaf ears this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to behold your majesty in the person of your Son, and to respond as you would have us. Create in us a hunger for your holiness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I love dolphins. I love them. These are amazing, fascinating, incredible creatures made by God for his glory. So last week, we were celebrating my daughter's birthday, and we took the family, and we went with some of our friends, members of ECC, to SeaWorld. And the highlight for me at SeaWorld was that dolphin show. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. I, I, was, I felt like a little boy, five years old, in a candy store, watching those dolphins. Incredible. You may not know this, but dolphins aren't fish. They're mammals, like us. So they're marine mammals and they need air to breathe. So they come up out of the water uh, every now and then for air. They are remarkably intelligent creatures and they are very social creatures. They always travel and swim in groups all together. In fact, that was some of the most exhilarating moments of the dolphin show was when four dolphins would all together leap out of the water, synchronized, and then go back in. It was just mind-blowing. You know what you will not see out in the open sea? You will not see often a dolphin swimming on its own. A dolphin that is swimming alone is a dolphin in danger. Because you see, these creatures swim together in groups in what they call pods. They protect one another. Uh, swimming together as a group keeps them from getting disoriented and confused. It keeps them safe from predators. And they have this remarkable instinct, protective instinct, that God has given them. It's amazing. When a particular dolphin in the group is sick or is struggling or struggling to swim, what the other dolphins will do will be to group around it and lift it up, up out of the water so that it can breathe again. And they keep doing that. That's the dolphin's protective instinct. Uh, and, and sometimes that instinct has resulted in the rescue of human beings also because they find a human being drowning and then their instinct is to push it up, push the person up out of the water. Well, as we look at today's passage, the author of Hebrews wants us to be like dolphins. The Christian life is a long hard journey. And in this journey, we must stick together, protect and strengthen one another, and help one another make it to the end. That's what the author of Hebrews says to us, and let's read from verses 12 and following. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone, 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." You are pretty familiar by now with the context of Hebrews. This was originally a sermon. It was preached by a concerned, passionate pastor to a congregation of Christians, of Jewish background Christians, who had grown weary, who were struggling in their faith, who had faced various trials, persecutions, afflictions, and were tempted to depart from Christ and go back to Judaism. And the author has reminded them and us over and over again that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is better. And even as these people have grown weary and tired and struggling, some of them on the brink of exhaustion, some of them ready to give up, some of them already straying, uh, the author uh, pointed them to the example of several people throughout chapter 11 examples of faith in the Old Testament, and then the supreme exemplar of faith, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He reminded us as we open chapter 12 that the Christian life is like a race. It's a long-distance endurance race. It's hard. It's an athletic contest. And He encouraged us to fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race set before us, laying aside the sin that entangles us. And then he also comforted us by saying, all of the trials that come into our lives, you know, these people were facing severe affliction, whom he's talking to, all of the trials and difficulties, these hardships, were not something unusual, but were the training given by a loving father that God our Father loves us and in His grace and mercy does bring trials into our lives as His fatherly discipline to train us to produce godliness in us so that we might share in His holiness and righteousness so that He might shape our character. Well, in light of all that, today's passage encourages us to strengthen one another and to strive together for that holiness, being sobered by the dangers of failure. Brothers and sisters, perseverance in the Christian life, making it to the finish line, making it to heaven, is a community project. We must help one another make it to the end. We must follow a dolphin spirituality. And this morning we're going to look at three commands for us to persevere to the end. Three commands uh, for the dolphin Christian life. The first one is this. Strengthen and set yourselves straight. Strengthen and set yourselves straight. How will we persevere to the end? We must strengthen and set ourselves straight straight, verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands 
and strengthen your weak knees. And the word therefore means in light of what he has just said in chapter 12. When God's word gives us commands, he never gives us commands apart from his grace. It's always in light of what God has done and what he is doing in light of his comfort that we are then commanded to act or behave in such a way. And so he's told us that our heavenly father loves us and is disciplining us, is treating us as sons, is raising us up to be holy like he is holy. And so in light of that, the author says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. These people had grown exhausted. They were weary. They were fainting. Their body language begins to show it, spiritually speaking. You know, your body language often reveals what's going on in your heart. Not always, but very often. Uh, when I was uh, growing up, you know, I love cricket. I still do, but I especially loved cricket when I was younger. And the hard thing for me in the 90s, growing up as a boy in the 90s, was that my team, India, had some great players, but they would always lose, all right, guaranteed. Uh, and one thing you would notice as you're watching these guys in the field is it used to be so annoying. I, I knew when to turn off the TV because midway through the match, they all begin looking like this, you know. And uh, their, their shoulders were drooping. They're not standing, you know, ready for action, this kind of like casual posture. Um, and it's a sure sign they were going to lose. They were not like the mighty Australians who always, like even at the end of the day, you know, are leaping and pouncing like panthers. Spiritually speaking, when our shoulders begin to droop, when our knees begin to grow weak, we need encouragement to press on. Christian life is like that. It's like a sporting event. It's long distance. It's endurance. It's painful. We often reach the point of exhaustion. We often feel like, I just can't take it anymore. I have nothing left. And into that kind of a situation, in this congregation, the author of Hebrews speaks, and he's quoting Scripture to them. He speaks to them from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4, which we heard in our call to worship this morning. Let me read Isaiah 35 to you. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The author is quoting scripture to say, come on, up, straighten up, get those hands and feet up. Don't keep drooping. Let's get a move on, people. And, and let me remind you again, this is not like Nike. This is not just do it. The Christian life is never just do it. No, he reminds us that God is the one who works in us and we then tough it out purely by God's grace at work within us. Think of the context of Isaiah 35 when he says, strengthen your weak hands, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. The context in Isaiah 35 is God will come. God will save you. You will see the glory of the Lord. And that's the whole of Hebrews, isn't it? Christ has come. He has gone before us and made a way. He has conquered. He has overcome through his suffering. He is our great high priest interceding for us. Jesus is at God's right hand praying for us even now. He has done the work. He has finished the race. He is seated at God's right hand and he is our joy and our reward. And so in light of this, the author says to us, come on, straighten up those backs. Lift up those arms. Help one another. 
you know, come back to the cricket field, um, some of the best players that I like on there are what they call the wicket keepers. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. But it's a guy who's standing over there, and yeah, he does his job as what he has to do on the sports field. But one thing the wicket keepers are always doing is they're always yelling at the other guys and encouraging them, come on, come on, well done. And that, that you know, in a, in a long, grueling five-day test match, and you wonder what, you watch this for five days? Yes, I do, it's, it's great. You need a lot of physical endurance and mental stamina to go on for five days. And at the end of the fourth day, in the India heat, which is rough, they're encouraging one another, you know, keep going, keep going. It's like running a marathon, right? As the marathon runners are beginning to flag, what do the onlookers do? They shout and encourage them. Keep running, just a little longer, just a little longer. And really, that's what the author is doing, and that's what he's encouraging us to do, brothers and sisters, and with one another. To encourage one another with Scripture. To urge one another on. Tell a brother or sister, Christ loves you. He's with you. You can, by God's grace, overcome this sin. I'm praying for you. Tell them that the Lord is working all things together for good even now in the midst of these trials. Seek to internalize God's word and then speak God's word with grace. Speak the truth in love with one another. Encourage one another. Look at what he says next there. He says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be out of joint but rather healed, verse 13. And again, he's quoting from Scripture. He's actually quoting from the book of Proverbs here, from Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 26. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4, let me read that to you. It says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, Turn your foot away from evil. And the original context there is a father exhorting his son to walk straight in the path of God's word and wisdom, not to swerve from God's commands. And as the author takes that then and says that to the whole church, and he says, make straight the paths for your feet, he's saying, make every consideration, as one person says, to help everyone finish the race. Don't let someone wander off like a solitary dolphin who's going to get drowned or attacked. Don't let someone fall aside and you keep running on without bringing them along. Did you, did you notice uh, what he says? He says, make straight paths for your feet so that, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So by what is lame, he means some, some people have picked up an injury. Some people are struggling in the race, hobbling along, barely able to run. And the community is responsible to keep running along the straight path so that they're not broken completely. It speaks to our direction as a community, as a church, doesn't it? When we are heading in the right direction, along a straight path, according to God's word, as a church, those who are limping and struggling 
might be healed. If the church's direction as a whole, as a church, is not according to God's word, is not Bible-centered, if as a community we are not heading on straight paths, but rather taking circuitous and difficult paths, then those who are limping will be broken, dislocated, put out of joint, broken beyond measure. So we ought to ensure that we are heading on the straight paths of God's word for the sake of those who are weak among us living in obedience as a church to God's commands. So maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those who is struggling. Brother or sister, you're here and you're drooping. The arms have been begun to sink. The knees are wobbling in your spiritual walk. Whether you're drooping or limping, or struggling, I want to say to you, there's grace. There is grace for you in Jesus, and strength to finish this race. He is merciful to those who are weak. He is sympathetic and overflowing with grace to help in time of need. He has been tempted just like you are. If you're on the brink of exhaustion this morning, I want to call you and say to you, your Savior can help you. And not only that, there's a whole community of fellow runners, the members of ECC, who are also ready and willing and eager to strengthen you and to help you in this time of need. Dear friend, if you're suffocating, struggling, remember a dolphin on its own is a dolphin headed for death. So if you're struggling, cry out for help. Don't desert the community. Draw near. Draw near to your gracious and merciful high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Draw near to the community of your brothers and sisters. Draw near. Share with someone. Talk with someone after the service. Say to them, I've been really struggling. I am on the brink of exhaustion. Would you pray for me? I need your encouragement. I need your help. Maybe you're here this morning and you're doing well. You know, you are running along and... The knees aren't wobbling, the shoulders are up and high, you have a burst of energy within you. If that's you, I want to encourage you, let's be like the dolphins. Do what the author of Hebrews says, with words from Scripture, with reminders of God's grace, seek out the weak, seek out those who are struggling, and encourage one another with prayer, with your presence, with truth with mercy, with compassion, let's strengthen one another, beloved, and set ourselves straight. As we think about strengthening one another and heading forward, it's important to know where we are headed. What are we pressing on towards as we persevere towards the end? That's what the author tells us in our next command our next command for the dolphin Christian life. Not only must we strengthen and set ourselves straight, but we must also strive for peace and holiness. 
Strive for peace and holiness. Look at verse 14 again. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he gives us here two aims to strive for. Peace and holiness. And the word strive there is a very strong word. You must recognize that. It means pursue this. Run after it. There's an urgency implied, an intentionality, an, an, an earnestness. And some uh, months ago, I was coming down out of my apartment and I was walking on the street and I saw something you, very unusual. You don't often see something like this. Uh, this lady in an abaya, right, covered from head to toe in an abaya, running, sprinting. And I was wondering, why is she sprinting? And then I saw her toddler had managed to get out of her control and was running out to the street. And she was sprinting and managed to grab him and bring him back. That's the urgency with which the author here is exhorting us to run, to strive after peace and holiness in the church. You know, holiness and peace don't happen automatically. They don't just, poof, appear out of nowhere. You don't drift towards godliness. You must run after it. So let's consider each of these. Strive for peace with all. You know, the Lord cares deeply about relational peace in his family, in the body of Christ, in the church. We were all once enemies to God and all once hostile towards him. The Lord Jesus Christ, God's own son, came, died on the cross, shed his blood to reconcile us to God, to take us from being enemies and make us God's friends so that we have peace with God. And in doing so, he has also made peace between us, that we are now those who once hated others, are now reconciled. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. And so the Lord is deeply concerned about us maintaining that peace, not living in relational conflict with others or in bitterness. In fact, the Lord warns us against coming to His supper, coming to the Lord's table, while living in open conflict and unresolved bitterness with other Christians. We are exhorted to examine ourselves, and it's an opportunity to reconcile before we come to this table. I remember several years ago, uh, two sisters, this was at another church, uh, had, had an ongoing relational conflict. And before we came to the Lord's table, as the pastor exhorted all of us to examine ourselves and to make sure there's no broken relationship, uh, they were sitting on opposite ends of the room, as people often do when they're in conflict. And just each of them, in and of their own accord, walked towards each other and embraced with tears and then took the Lord's Supper together. That's a model for us. You know, some Christians, instead of being like dolphins, end up like sharks, swimming out solitary all on their own, sniffing blood, ready for a fight, 
Other uh, Christians end up like orcas. They begin to swim in packs like the dolphins, but the orcas do the opposite. They find uh, something that they want to prey upon and they push it to the bottom of the ocean so that it dies. What about you? How do you respond when you've been offended? Or when you're embroiled in conflict with another person? Do you cut off the relationship and avoid them completely? You know, sometimes two services helps us with that, right? I'll come to a different service so I just won't see that person again. Or says, well, I'm just going to check out. I'm going to go to a different church because I can't bear the sight of them. Do you brush it aside outwardly, say, it's, oh, it's no big deal, but then you grow bitter in your heart? Do you gossip about the other person or talk about them behind their back? No, brothers and sisters, these are not biblical responses. We can't have broken relationships in the family of Christ. No, the biblical response is to pursue the person who has offended you. Talk with them. Bring in a mediator if needed. Make every effort to make peace. Gentle confrontation if needed. And if you're the one being confronted, humble apology and seeking forgiveness if you've done wrong. And when someone seeks your forgiveness, graciously forgive them, recognizing how much you have been forgiven by the Lord of heaven and earth. You know, as we move to one assembly, to a single service, there's actually going to be a lot of opportunities for conflict and frustration and irritation when you didn't get your favorite seat or you didn't get the parking spot or you ended up in the other main hall because someone else came before you. As we're all together, it creates more opportunities for disunity. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, strive for peace with all. See what we have promised to one another in our church covenant. We say we will strive to keep the unity of the Spirit by pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness, resisting gossip and division, and welcoming one another's loving discipline. We must strive after peace with all. But it's not only peace. Notice the second pursuit that we must strive for. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you remember what he said in verse 10? In verse 10 he says that the Lord disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is simply wholehearted devotion, consecration to God. Wholehearted devotion and consecration to the Lord. And the Bible speaks of two senses of holiness in the Christian life. There are two ways that Scripture speaks of holiness. First is simply what we would call positional holiness. We are holy already. God has made us holy. Think back to chapter 3. The author said, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling. Once for all, by the death of Christ, when we turn from sin and trust in His blood, we are holy. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10, we have been sanctified, that is made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, this is the gospel. 
Our God, our Creator, is a holy God. The Bible says He is holy, holy, holy. He is blazing in His purity. He is devoted to His own righteousness and His own glory. And He created us to know Him in holiness, to worship Him and enjoy Him and glorify Him. But none of us, by nature and by choice, lives that way. We come into this world unholy, devoted not to God but to ourselves and to this world. We are stained, defiled by sin, unclean in every sense. And for our rebellion against a holy God, we deserve His just, righteous wrath. His holy wrath burns against us because of our sin. But He is rich in mercy. His holiness is a holy love. And in His love towards sinners, He sent His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, took on flesh so that He was fully God and fully man. He lived the perfectly holy life that we could never live. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, He was holy, innocent, undefiled, far separated from sin, lived the perfect life that we could not live, died a perfect, holy death under the wrath of God, taking upon Himself the holy wrath of God for sinners so that if we turn from our sin and flee to Him, His blood cleanses us from every sin, wiped clean, and God consecrates us to Himself, making us, declaring us holy and blameless in His sight. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, He can save you today. You can be a holy saint today, cleansed from all your sin, holy and blameless in the sight of God by turning from your sin and trusting in this Redeemer. Just call upon His name today in faith and He will save you. And all of us who are in Christ have experienced that transition from the realm of the unholy into the realm of the holy. We are positionally, even now in the sight of God, holy. But the Bible also speaks of holiness in another sense. It speaks of progressive holiness, positional holiness, progressive holiness. This is to speak of our growth in holiness. That is that God's power works within us so that by faith and by trusting in His promises, by desiring His glory, we grow more and more in holiness. We grow increasingly to be like Christ. And that's what the author is speaking of here where he says, strive for holiness. Friends, we're not saved by being holy, but we are saved for being holy. We are saved to live a life devoted to God. So I want to ask you, is that your life? What do you think about when your mind slips into neutral? How easy do you find it to lie or deceive others? How much do you find yourself gossiping or engaging in unwholesome talk? What kind of humor do you indulge in? Do you find yourself longing for sexual sin? 
What do you love more than anything else? If someone were to do a spiritual audit of your life, your heart, your desires, your pursuits today, would you be seen as someone who is pursuing holiness? Brothers and sisters, these are weighty questions. Our hearts must be pure, must be clean, must be unstained. Striving after holiness means that nothing stands in the way of our vision of Christ. Did you see what he says? Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, that's the goal of the Christian life. That's the goal of all of creation and history is that we would see God. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, that we would want to see the Lord. One day we will see him fully and completely. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All of our sins will be gone and we will see him. The glorious God who saved us, who created us, who loved us, who sent his son to die for us in and through Christ, we will behold his glory We will be transformed to be like Christ and forever enjoy joy and peace. What joy and satisfaction will be ours on that day when we see him in all his beauty and we rejoice in his infinite glory and perfection when our vision that is now blurred and weak is perfectly sanctified and renewed and the fullness of his ineffable glory and his blazing holiness gives light to our eyes for all eternity and in the new heavens and the new earth we will be surrounded and enveloped in the light of the glory of the God who is and we will share it. We will share his light like mirrors reflecting the glory of the sun. We will reflect the glory of the Lord who saved us in perfect holiness and be forever like him. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more longings that are not satisfied. We will see him. But did you see what the author said? That it's conditional. To experience that glorious heaven, to behold that glorious sight of our holy Lord, we must be striving for holiness now. And so the question is, do you desire holiness, dear friend? Are you pursuing holiness? Take heed, without holiness, there is no heaven. I'm not talking about perfection or sinlessness in our Christian lives. No, we all stumble in many ways. I'm talking about a fight to grow, a passion, a desire to be more like Jesus. To see more of him in your life. If you're here and you call yourself a Christian, but your life is not marked by a desire for holiness, a desire for Christ-likeness, a pursuit of holiness, it might be the case that you're not truly saved. You haven't really been born again. In which case I exhort you to flee to Christ today. Brothers and sisters, let's strive for holiness. There's an eternal reward that awaits us. Talk to someone. Talk to another brother or sister in Christ. Ask them, where can I grow in holiness? What do you see in my life that you would encourage me to work on? How can I grow in holiness? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus and his glory now. Ask his grace 
to set our hearts on Him, to consecrate our lives to Him, resolve to live for Him, and draw a line that separates ourselves from sin and devotes ourselves to Him. But did you notice the author is not just speaking to us individually, nor is he admonishing us towards holiness simply as individuals. He gives us specific way that we must strive for holiness. We must strive for holiness together. And that leads to our third command in this text for how we persevere to the end, for how we live the dolphin Christian life. We must strengthen and set ourselves straight. We must strive for peace and holiness. And finally, we must see to it that no one fails or falls short. See to it that no one fails or falls short. That's in verses 15 to 17. Starts with, see to it. And I just want to highlight that, that phrase there, see to it, in the original is uh, what we call a participle. That means it's not the main verb. Uh, see to it modifies what was the previous verb. So you could always translate it like this. Strive for holiness by seeing to it that no one fails. Right? So he's telling us how we must strive for holiness. And if you notice, he uses the word that three times. He tells us three dangers that we must avoid. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, verse 15. See to it that no one, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, second half of verse 15. See to it that no one, verse 16, is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And, and the verb see to it again is used often, it's the same verb used in the New Testament to describe the responsibilities and duties of pastors. Pastors are responsible to pursue those who are straying, to help those who are struggling, to call people to faith and obedience in Jesus, to have a watchfulness over the souls of the members of the church. But here he's not speaking to pastors. He's speaking to the whole church, to all of us as a community. You, brothers and sisters, you, dear church member, are to have a pastoral concern for the souls of your fellow members, of other brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and here's how it's worked out. We guard one another from these dangers. First he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He doesn't see to say, see to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God, individual Christian. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Perseverance in the Christian life is a community project. This is why, by the way, church membership is so important. Because in church membership, we are making a covenant, we are making a commitment to watch over one another's souls and help one another make it to the end. Church membership is not just some process that helps ministries run better in the church. As one person says, church membership is a commitment to help one another make it to heaven. We all need one another to help one another finish the race. We're all prone to falling away, each one of us. I am prone to this. We're all prone to falling away and not finishing the race. We need each other. We're all responsible to help one another make it to the end. The next danger he gives us, he tells us, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble. Now, and defiling many. 
Now, you know, when you hear your root of bitterness, don't think this is speaking of someone who's just become a bitter person, right? Uh, you know, sometimes people get hurt or wounded about something or offended, and then they grow bitter in their hearts and cantankerous towards others. That's not what he's talking about here. No, the language he's using when he says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble comes from our scripture reading earlier today, Deuteronomy chapter 29. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, there is this warning. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, verse 18, one who when he hears the word of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. It will bring about the wrath and fury of God. The warning in Deuteronomy was to say, let no one grow up as a bitter root within the community, one who is, has his heart set on things other than the Lord God, and who says in his heart, I'm fine. It doesn't matter how I live. And that leads to defiling the whole community and begins to lead others astray as well. Kind of like weeds grow up among plants. You know how weeds grow and, and how they function in a garden. Weeds choke out the life of other plants. They are unwanted parasitic plants that grow up in a garden. They suck all the nutrients from the soil. They even attach themselves in a parasitic way to the root of other plants, good plants, and stunt their growth starve them till those plants die. And here's the thing about weeds, if left unaddressed, they multiply. They fill the whole garden and defile it. Brothers and sisters, you and I, all of us are responsible to see to it that weeds don't grow up in our hearts, in our midst as a community. We are responsible to guard the holiness and life of the church, of our brothers and sisters in Christ, of this community. The Lord places this responsibility upon all of us. Did you see the third danger he warns about? He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Well, pastor, I don't want to talk about other people's sex life. That's none of my business. No, it is your business if you're in Christ. It is our business to ensure that there is no sexual immorality among us or unholiness among us, being devoted to things other than God. And the example that he gives there is Esau. And you might look at that and wonder, well, Esau wasn't sexually immoral. Like, you know, you might have heard the story of Esau. He was the brother of a man named Jacob in the book of Genesis. And he was a, a hunter and he went out hunting. His brother was a good cook. Uh, Esau went out hunting, comes back home. He's hungry. He sees his brother has made this great stew. And the, the smell is delicious. And in his hunger, he says, I want the stew. His appetite is overwhelming. And Jacob says, I'll give you the stew if you trade me your inheritance rights, your birth rights as, as the firstborn, because Esau was the older brother. And for one bowl of stew to quench his appetite, 
he traded his birthright. That's how sin works. For brief momentary satisfaction, for brief moment of pleasure, people will trade eternity. That's how sexual immorality works. It blinds you. So that for fleeting pleasure, you trade it all. That's what happened in the garden where Adam and Eve traded paradise for a bite of fruit. And as people begin to live that way, after a point it becomes too late. That's the author's point here. Later, Esau began to seek after his birthright and his blessing with tears, howling and crying out, oh, that I would have this. But it was too late. There was no opportunity to repent. And friends, some in our church are drifting, drifting, straying, wandering, like dolphins out in the open sea by themselves, or suffocating at the bottom of the ocean. And the author is warning us, seek out, strive for holiness. Make sure no one is unholy before it's too late. In 1985, the Times Magazine had a very interesting article about lifeguards at a community pool in New Orleans. Uh, it was the first time in the pool's history that they had had an entire summer season with no drownings. And so the lifeguards gathered to celebrate that there had been no drownings this summer season. And at the end of the party, they found a body drowned at the bottom of the pool. Surrounded by lifeguards, somebody drowned. The author is telling us, don't be like those lifeguards. Be like the dolphins. Lift one another up. Let me read to you again our church covenant. We will press on together toward maturity and holiness and godliness, resisting sin and worldly lusts, teaching and admonishing one another and growing in Christ-like character through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Some quick questions for you. When was the last time you prayed for other members and let them know? When was the last time you shared biblical truth with another church member to encourage them? When was the last time you approached another member or called them to check on how they're doing spiritually? When was the last time you introduced yourself to someone, maybe someone you don't know, with the aim to build a relationship and do them some spiritual good? When was the last time you were vulnerable with someone about your struggles? When was the last time you saw someone in sin and lovingly confronted them with the goal of bringing them back to Christ? Do you know others in this church enough and is your life open to others enough that we can live in these ways? Remember, you're not just responsible for your own salvation, but also for the salvation and the holiness of other members in this church that we would make it to the end. 
my favorite verse of my favorite song that we sing together at ECC goes like this. When that day arrives and the race is won and our griefs give way to deliverance, we will fully know as we're fully known. All our groans will end as new songs begin. And I love looking around the room for this next part. I love looking around the room and saying, you know, that's the goal. That's, that's why I'm here. Th this is the goal of all of the preaching and all of the trials and all of the labor is that one day this multitude, this multitude will stand before the Lord. And a multitude from every tribe and tongue wearing robes of white will stand before your throne and our hearts will be so consumed by you that we never cease to praise. May our hearts be so consumed by you that we'll never cease to praise. May it be so. Amen.